You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz. Hi, my name is Beth Raymer, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Beth Raymer. She's the author of Fireworks Every Night, a novel. Beth, how are you? Hi, Tony. I'm fine. How are you? I, you know, I'm good. And sometimes it's, and, and sometimes it's hard for me to feel good. Do you ever get that way? That you, that you're good, but it's hard for you to feel good. Like, do you ever get the way where like you experience like hap- like you're, you're like going, I think I feel good. And then like, that's not an, a status quo in your life. So then you go, what's coming next. <laughs> do you ever do that? Or is that just me? I, I don't do that, but I know it's not just you. <laughs> so when you have, so when you have joy, you're cool with joy. I am. You must be Zen. Do you do some type of practice or are you, are you a practicer of, of something that keeps you uh, so level-headed? I'm a practicer of writing. I think that's, I have very low goals. I think that's what makes me so ha- happy. And when I achieve them, I'm really happy. <laughs> that is that's philosophy right there. Low goals, but you're <laughs> but you're coming. I mean, you're you're you have low goals, and then you're coming out with a plethora of books, and you're doing a lot of stuff in the publishing world. So I don't think people outside of you would think that you have low goals. Do you feel like what you've produced doesn't isn't like is kind of a low? Um, it's like, oh yeah, I could have done a lot more than that, but I'm keeping it steady and slow. No, I mean more like, um, in terms of production, um, you know, I wake up, if I get five hours of writing in a day, I'm very happy. Yeah. Even if the work is crap, even if I know while I'm writing it, this is bad. I really am going in the wrong direction, I think. Whatever it is, but I'm engaging with my work. I've written enough, you know, especially like I wrote the memoir. I wrote a novel. I kind of know now know I'm going to figure it out, but I need to get it all down. Isn't that everything it's, it, it continues to blow my mind because I'm always telling my students that, and then I forget it myself. And then I'm like, Oh God. And I have all those like writing days where it's just like, where it feels like nothing for a while. And then all of a sudden it's something. And I, then I really, I realized, Oh wait, I needed all those nothing writing days in order to get to a something. Yeah. Yeah. So it's never a waste. I think the only time I get frustrated is if I can't write for some reason. I don't even really allow myself to have those days anymore. When I when my son was very young, um, I definitely had those days. But now I've kind of gotten it all under control. <laughs> my life is just under control and I prioritize my writing. And that's a lot. So. I'm happy. <laughs> when did you when did you start prioritizing your writing in life? Like when did you go you, when did you go wait a second, this is my jam. Everybody get out of the way. I'm doing this. I mean, that was probably right when I started graduate school at Columbia. 
you know, like the stakes were high. I was taking out a lot of money in student loans. I felt very behind my my peers and my classmates. And I was like, I have to produce, <laughs> you know, I have to work incredibly hard. I probably have to work like three times harder than they work. Um, so I got in this kind of very a uh, mode. It's, it was almost like a boot camp mode. Um, and it wasn't, it's kind of like how I spend my time now. Like I write in the morning, I have all my fresh creative energy, but like also I live my life. I'm done with writing at a certain time, but at night I come back to my computer. I'm always applying for fellowships, residencies. You know, there's that other part of writing, which is getting funding, working on proposals, reporting my next book. So you, it's like a factory. And Columbia really prepared me for, it's not enough to just write. You know, you have to be um, driven to get these other things as well. You always have to be in the mix. So, oh, that's, that's something I need to learn because like, I didn't even think about applying for fellowships until last year when a uh, friend of mine was just like, Tony, you've done like a lot of stuff. You should start applying for all these things. And I'm like, oh, really? And then I applied for McDowell and uh, Yado and both of them said, yeah, not you, dude. And I went, well, I don't know if I'm going to get, you know, and, and then I, that like completely tore me down. And I'm like, oh, why am I bothering with that when I should just keep writing? But the problem is that I feel like you have a better handle on it because you you just keep looking for the next one and the next one. Is that how it works? Well, I think um, uh, I don't. Well, <laughs> I don't know. I guess I do keep looking for the next one and the next one. But also, like you just you have to keep applying, even if you get rejected. Like that just can't be the last time Tony applies to McDowell. You know, right. it's like, you know what, maybe give it a year. I'm not going to apply the next, you know, the very next season. But you have to just keep applying just because they say no once doesn't mean they're going to say no forever. And I'm switching genres, you know, like my first book was a memoir. This wasn't fireworks is a novel. My next book, I sold a random house. It's reporting. It's straight nonfiction. So that like, I, it makes me eligible for different kinds of grants and fellowships. So I'm just trying, I try to take advantage of all that stuff. It, I mean, as I'm listening to you, I'm realizing that it's my problem because like when I'm working on a book and submitting my work to be published, that's a different thing. I'm, I'm, a, I'm maniacal and diabolical and um, you know, there is no, no. Cause I know the answer is yes somewhere. And then, but, the, but on the fellowship thing, that just feels so new to me. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, huh? I, I, I get timid. I guess I'm timid. It's about that. And I shouldn't be, oh, yeah. I should just. I mean, it, 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 um, it requires like a whole different set of confidence and skills. Just like you're saying, it's like something it's you, it's something you have to learn to do. Like, when I was at Columbia, like I applied for a Fulbright and that was like the first big fellowship I went for. And that, you know, some of these fellowships, they're just like, they, they require so much, the proposal, the sample writing, the asking for references, like from four or five people, that's a lot to, you have to get into a kind of zone with those things. I hate asking for favors. I hate asking for references. McDowell doesn't require refer references anymore. They took that away, which I think is great. But um, a lot of these other ones do. So, 
Yeah, I, I, yeah, I just we're writers, I, we're artists, we're trying to make it. This is how you make it. Like this is it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, at the same time, you know, like people are hitting me up to, um, to, to, to be references for their like grad degree programs and all that stuff, and I'm really happy to do it. Like when they, when I'm just, I'm just excited that they're moving forward with what they're doing. So I have to remember that other people when i ask for references could be excited that they're just a part yeah, of definitely. yeah yeah we're not always just burdens even though it, i feel like one when i'm right. asking because <laughs> a yeah. lot of times i go to my professors and i know they're just bombarded with this stuff but whatever they are happy for me and they're always happy to hear what i'm up to and to read my little plan for my next little book whatever i'm doing <laughs> what what's it like what's it like going from memoir i mean i don't know if i i don't know if i'll ever be able to write a memoir but i could write i could write very close to what i've done and call it novel but what's it like shifting those gears to memoir novel nonfiction I guess it it's all has to feed you a little bit, right? Feed your soul. Yeah. Um, I don't know what it's like. It's fun. You know, it's like, uh, it's like getting new apartments or getting new boyfriends or I don't know. It's like a whole new thing to explore. Like, how's it's this like getting new boyfriends. Yeah. It's got to be so much better than getting new boyfriends because. <laughs> like how one's gonna work out um yeah. how can they approach this one I don't know there's I I love um I love reporting so it always feels good for me to do you know even with fireworks it's a straight novel but I did do a lot of reporting for this um you know just in terms of like atmospherics and you know, the book is very autobiographical. I'm kind of like returning to my adolescent self and my adolescent years and my adolescent, my friends from that time. I totally did a deep dive into my adolescent self for this book. So that is research. Um, I'm drinking a kombucha. It's drinks with Tony, right? Hey, I'm, I'm drinking mineral water. We're going hard. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna ask you, but like, if there's a, should I get a real drink? But it's only six o'clock here, so it's a little yeah. too. Early. <laughs> it's, no, um, well, uh, the, the, so I started this show like 20 years ago when I would tape, and I would tape authors coming through in bars, and then it would go on the radio as the first hour, and then the second hour would be bands coming in who were playing in San Francisco at the time. So this was many years ago. I named it. And then usually when the bands came in studio, there was tons of liquor around. So we would, we would all get really trashed and be silly and stupid. And then now it's, and then now it's just like 20 years later and it should be called like, you know, high tea with Tony or something, because (laughs) it's, I'm a different person. I, I know that I, 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 and it's also, it's so much more, I like the idea of being more vulnerable, not having liquid courage, as they say, when we get on a microphone, it's just like, just be, terrified sometimes and love that feeling you know but i would be terrified if i was drinking and doing it too Mm -hmm. (laughs) oh you're terrified now (laughs) no i mean if i was if it did require alcohol it, it would still be scary 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was like, oh, God knows what I'm going to say. Right. Well, not only that, it's just, and and also, you know, back in those days, I used to think I would say, I was saying brilliant things and I listened back to the recordings <laughs> and I'm just going, oh no, that's just like a bunch of drunk idiots in a room. Okay. So let's, 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 uh, let's become adulting. What do you feel was more vulnerable to you? Was it writing the novel from your, uh, from your heart about what, uh, about who you were, or was it writing the memoir? Um, well, they both Wired a lot of vulnerability. Um, they both required, I don't know if one requires more vulnerability than the other. Um, I'm sorry, I just had a moment of clarity question. That was, I, that came out of nowhere. I Charlie Rose, you. Whoa. <laughs> it's okay it's a really good question I think I would like I would have to really think about it when I wrote my memoir you know I was like I started working on that I mean I that book was published when I was 33 it's almost like I didn't know enough to be I don't know I was so unselfconscious I guess I didn't really know what I was doing I hadn't published anything yeah you know I just like went for it um the novel, I think I was a little more hesitant to write about certain things. Um, I felt like I was, you know, because it is so autobiographical, I kind of felt like I was betraying some family members. I had to, you know, I had to really figure out if I was, <laughs> you know, even though it's fiction, but it was so, it's so thinly veiled that I had to have a lot of you know, I've been seeing a therapist for years and we talk about the book and my writing constantly. So I guess it's just different kinds of vulnerability come out. And same here. I'm, I've been in therapy for years and my book comes up a lot too. Uh, the, um, when I, the first book that came out was like, I mean, that was, I, I needed two sessions of therapy a week when I was writing that book. <laughs> Seriously. <Right? laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> and then now I'm like, okay, now, you know, I, it's uh, now it's just, now my therapist is like, so what do you what were you what are you writing about this week? And I'm like, don't mess with my creativity because I know you're gonna make it into something about, you know, I'm gonna tell you what the scene is, and you're gonna be like, Well, that's about you and your mother. And I don't need to hear that because I'm working on creative stuff, so I don't need to know it yet. You can read it later. <laughs> yeah. It's uh it's a, it uh, didn't someone call it a dangerous profession writing? I think I think writing has its dangers to uh to exposing ourselves and and the, and the possibility of betrayal i think if you're not betraying someone the book's not good someone's got to be betrayed in there in your real life or, I mean, you, uh, or you did it wrong in you know in fireworks a major theme is betrayal there's a lot of betrayal in the book and um I don't know why I found it so hard to write honestly about the betrayals because they had happened. And why was I the, suffering through some guilt about it? Um, I mean, that took a lot of, to work out on my behalf. <laughs> and my therapist was very helpful with that. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> There should be there should be therapists that specialize in um, ther therapy for writers for writers, like a literary therapist. Like if I My were to, this is kind of like that. 
I think really? she has a lot of I think she has a lot of people in the arts because she's very good with the concerns of artists and kind of like the lifestyles of artists and the you know just how we live our lives. <laughs> you know, it's not that we don't have such neat conventional lives. Um she's very she's very she seems very used to hearing that kind of stuff. <laughs> Is she in New York? Yeah. Yeah. Do you go in person? I used to, and then it stopped. She stopped doing in person and during COVID and she hasn't gone back. I miss, I miss being in person. I prefer to go to her office. Yeah. Like phone, phone sessions. I might, I do mine on um whatever her, cause it's also online with her. She used to work in Hollywood, which is pretty close to where I'm at, even though I hate going to Hollywood and, for any reason at all uh, but now she's like deep now she's like deep in the valley uh west valley and i'm like yeah no well, i'll <laughs> i don't feel like commuting an hour to get to you so we'll, the, the, on the screen is fine um which is another thing that drives me nuts about los angeles when i think about new york city it's just like you just get on the six train you know yeah. and then you're like oh okay I'm here and you know, someone rubbed their balls against me on the subway, but whatever. And uh, how are you today? Right. I love that about New York too. The I, balls thing. <laughs> subway anywhere. Just, yeah. Just driving, getting in a subway, getting in a car in Los Angeles sucks. Yeah. I love, I, I adore the subway, even though I'm still utterly confused and turned around often um, when I was, cause I was there in spring and I was staying, um, uh, on, uh, was I on 92nd? I was across the street from the 92nd Y okay. and a friend of mine moved in with her boyfriend and she's like, dude, my, my place is empty for like two weeks. And I'm like, I'm flying out right now. <laughs> I was just like, and it was so, I just had so much fun. It was kind of a weird neighborhood cause I was used to staying in Brooklyn and I was kind of like walking around going, I don't get this neighborhood, but it was okay. And it was just so close to like get down and meet my friends in Greenwich village and yeah. stuff. And it's, it, but it's just like, everything's so beautifully open to you there. As long as you got your little sub, your, your Metro card, you're good. <laughs> Do no, you, you use the, what's that? No, I my son is six and he has his Metro card now. Like I yeah. taught him how to like, he gets it out of the machine. And even he it, like, it even gives him so much freedom as a six year old. It's unbelievable that card the freedom yeah. did you what what was it that someone was letting their nine-year-old ride the subway and they got like total flack for it so i don't know if you remember that and i'm like you should be riding the subway alone when you're nine that's kind of cool it reminds me of growing up when i was a kid where it's just like i walked to school for like on my own i was walking back on my own we had our friends we, you know we walk with our friends so if anyone wanted to kidnap us, there was two of us to get instead of one. Right. So, um, what do you think of that? How, how old will your, will your son be when you let him pop on the subway all on his own? I have no idea. I think I'd be a little more comfortable with buses. I mean, he could definitely ride a bus at nine with a friend. Something about being underground, I don't know. Yeah. Like anything can happen under there. <laughs> that's it yeah that's right because i remember i mean i lived in the suburbs of san francisco and i used to take the bus home from school when i was nine i would i would take the public bus home and we would always try to sneak on too it was a dime 
but we would always try to save our dimes. So we try to sneak on the bus and we used to get away with it sometimes. And I'd feel so bad. I, we, I'd be in back and I'd just be like, oh my God, I just stole. I just <laughs> stole. God's going to kill me. He's going to kill me. You know, I just the guilt. But but at the same time, I wanted to fit in with my friends. And then I would have like enough dimes to save where you're like, hey, chocolate milk for everyone at lunch tomorrow, right? Yeah, so I mean, navigating New York with the kids got to be an interesting thing. I mean, live, growing up in New York must be interesting. It's fun. I love raising a child in New York. I think he has a great child. Like you know, I grew up kind of like in rural Florida, so this is like his childhood is just completely different from mine. I think it's wonderful. I love raising a kid in New York. It's kind of easy. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> do, you, do you know the comedian uh, Andrew Schultz? Is it Schultz? Schultz? No, I don't know. Um, he grew up. It, it's he intrigues me a lot because he. Um, well, he had he had his net. He had his. I think his special was on Netflix, and Netflix wanted him cut out two or three jokes, and he told them no. And he bought the special back, and then released it on his own, and made a ton of money doing that. But it was a huge gamble. But but how he approaches comedy and how he approaches just um, all, all of it is because he grew up. I, th I think it's uh, what do they call the iron? The, what's the iron district? The iron I'm flat blank. Flatiron. Flat he, he he like grew up there, like right in the middle of Manhattan. He grew up, so he so you know I I just sit there and go, that's why he's so good at really talking about every single culture and race because because he knows the very small specifics about it and he can dive in and really you know it's when he's doing crowd work when with his stand-up it's like he knows exactly where a person's from and then he could tell how long they lived in the united states and ju it's just because he he got he grew up in that melting pot and that makes me like so happy that someone got to do that and it makes me kind of wish yeah. i got to do that you know Right. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Like my son went to nursery school in the East Village and it was just such a, I mean, such an awesome experience for him to ride his little scooter to his little nursery school and lock it up. I mean, he was like three years old. <laughs> oh, it's so cute. <laughs> what, um, and so you grew up in Florida. What brought you to, oh, you went to Columbia. Is that what got you to New York? I actually, I moved to New York to fight. I was boxing to fight in the Golden Gloves. And that's how I met our mutual friend, Robert. You're a boxer. Yeah. Do you still train? No, I don't train. No. Um, I, I, yeah, I don't train. I gave up boxing for Bikram yoga. And now I just lift weights. <laughs> oh, yeah. So you stopped. Did you stop yoga? Yeah, I stopped because I did Bikram and I stopped with... Um, yeah, like in, with the pandemic, like it was so gross to go into the sweaty Bikram studio. So many of them closed here. I don't even know if there's any open anymore. Oh, right. I was like, okay, I need a new exercise. And then I just started lifting weights. That's uh, that's pretty cool. I know it, uh, there was a, um, I mean, kind of, Robert's always trying to, he's like, dude, let's go get on the mat. Let's do this. Let's do, I'm like, dude you don't understand how out of shape I am compared to you. Cause you're like training. <laughs> like all I'm going to be doing is going ow hurts. Ow. That's my safe word. Ow. Stop. <laughs> ow. And, um, 
anyway but now i'm kind of a little more uh open to it because another friend of mine so i'm just like dude is there any place where it's just like middle-aged dudes who <laughs> don't want to kill each other and are just kind of scared of getting hurt but they want to try it and he's like oh he's like yeah yeah i i know all the guys that you're where you i'm gonna put you in that area and i'm like great i can do that i can i can do the middle-aged guys just going this is weird, but we're going to be so okay. Where, where do the middle-aged guys work out in Los Angeles who don't want to get hurt? I don't know. And that's, he hasn't <laughs> sent me the email yet of the who I need to touch base with them after this Dell, if you're listening. Um, but uh, so I, I just told him, I'm like, I live right by Los Feliz. And he's like, Oh my God, Los Feliz. Yeah, of course. I know. Blah, 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 blah. I'm like, all right. Um, anyway, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't want to get hurt emotionally. I'd rather get hurt physically. I've been taking, but I've been taking clown classes, which is a lot of uh, physical work too. Yeah. And I, and I didn't realize how much physical work it is. So I'm all, so that starts in a month and that's why I'm starting to do yoga again. I'm doing yoga every day. So when I get to, so when I get to my intermediate clown classes, I'm, uh, I'm up to speed. So all the kids aren't going, okay, old man. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> so did you commute to the East Village when your kid was three? Like, where well, do you we were living? Um, we lived in the East Village, and then finally, it's like the rent just got so expensive. And this was when I don't know, I think he was like four. We because we lived for like two years, three years on a fourth, fifth floor walk up, 400 square feet, $2,200 a month. And I was like, okay, we can't like, we can't do this anymore. And so I started looking at other places and then I found um, an awesome rent controlled apartment in Washington Heights. So I'm like, I won the lottery. So I'm never leaving this place. My rent is, you know, $1,200. Oh my God. That is so and rad. I, I know it took yeah. forever for me to find this and it's beautiful it's the most well-kept building and i love my son's school his friends here everything is just perfect and that's also what allows me to be a writer yeah exactly do you know who taught me that about 20 years ago i and this was for drinks with tony i interviewed richard hell the um you know who richard hell is he yeah. um he was in a band called richard hell and the voidoids he was also in early television he was and he's a very West, I think he's, uh, or I th no, I think he's East Village, um, started kind of the no wave scene of uh, New York, which later became like Lydia Lunch and Sonic Youth and all that. And I interviewed him and, you know, he, he wrote this song called The Blank Generation, which um, I wish I could just play for you right now. I should have had, I should have had this queued up to play music tracks, but this has never happened before. But um. I assumed he was making money off of his music and I was talking to him and I was just like, you must be making, you know, at least some residuals and stuff. He's like, I make no money for my music. And I'm like, what? Cause what he did in the seventies is just like, I'm like, he inspired everyone, but he wants to be, he, he has, he has novels out and he writes other stuff. And he's just like, Tony, I'm going to tell you something, keep your needs low and you can do whatever you want. And he still has his rent control apartment in uh, East village from the 1970s he has not moved so i'm sure he's paying like 400 a month rent or what, whatever it is and it's just like oh wait 
that's like almost being wealthy and having the choice to get up and write every single day. And some people would take that and go, oh, great. I could be lazy and play video games and get stoned all the time. But some of us are driven and go, oh, great. That opens everything up so I can do my heart's desire of production. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) How do you, how do you, what's that? These places, rent controlled apartments in New York are very hard to find. I mean, how did you find yours? What was, well, how did you come upon your rent control? Um, God, I don't really. What is the super secret? God, that's a great question. I don't know. I mean, I was pretty desperate. I was the mother of an, a single mom of an 18 month old kid. Um, I, so you need to walk around with an 18 month year old kid. You have to borrow a friend's 18 month year old kid and like, and what's that? I, think it was, I don't know. I just remember it was truly a full-time job. Every morning I woke up, I sent out just emails, emails, emails. I entered every lottery, you know, I don't, in New York, there's like a lottery system. Every, like whenever a new building is built, they have, they have a couple just for like, if you make, of course in New York, it's if you make under $200,000 a year, you're considered, you know, lower class. <laughs> I know. Yeah. People um, have no idea. It's just like, they're like, Oh, and the poverty is at, you know, $50,000 a year. And I'm like, I qualify. <laughs> Rad. <laughs> <laughs> so these like in, in New York City, there's private schools and you're seen as middle class if you make 600,000. That's nuts. I'm just like, oh God, it's kind of like, it's kind of gross, right? Well, and this is something about New York that excites me. Something that happens in LA that excites me too is people are so, this is society in general. I find that people are so, um, they try to, they're always like, I got to get to do this. Everything's so important. Like they go to like, even see these, these, you know, screenwriters that go to the coffee shop. When I go to the coffee shop, I have my like yellow paper. I'm, I'm I never bring a laptop. I still against that completely. If I'm not writing from this, I've printed it out and I'm redlining. I can't bring a, I can't bring a laptop because, because everyone's writing a screenplay here, but they're all writing it with like vigor. And they're like scrunching their faces. Like every word is important. Yeah, in Los Angeles. Yeah. Yeah. You're just like, dude, come on. You're it's you're not just can you just relax and be a writer? And then in New York, there's there's kind of that tension where it's just like we're getting somewhere because we're busy. We're busy. And as and I walk the sidewalks and I just kind of saunter on the sidewalks. I'm just like, oh yeah, I can I walk through this life in a very different way than a lot of people. Oh, I missed that subway. Well, I'll get the next one. And people are like, oh. Yeah, we don't have jobs. I mean, these people have it, right? Right. We don't have job. But here's the thing. I feel like we do. I feel like I do more work than a lot of those people because I will work to death and I'll work till three in the morning. And I'll I feel like I almost work more than them, but I love what I do and I wouldn't have it any other way. And then they're they're working in a is in a time compressed thing where they have to be at a certain place at a certain time and out at a certain time so they can go play racquetball at seven o'clock and have this thing or, or maybe I'm just being um, completely stereotyping. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm the jerk in this whole thing and I just need to relax and not laugh at these people. You're a jerk. I just think they're the divide between 
people who go into corporate jobs and people who stay in the arts, it just gets wider and wide. Just when you yeah. when you're like in your twenties and it starts to happen, you know it's wide, but you're still kind of going out at night and going to the same bars. But like with every passing year, and then by the time you're like in your like late forties, like I am, it's like the divide is just so great. And like you know, of course, your lives and your jobs have shaped you in such ways. And I mean, I look at my friends who have really truly stayed in the corporate world and. I can't believe how what they own, like their apartments and they're just, they own so much, but they're not the most interesting people. <laughs> and it's all, yeah. Well, and I feel like corporate culture does have a cult-like mentality to it, especially these days. It's just nuts. And it's so uh, nuts. yeah. And then, and then at some point, if you've over, if you've over leveraged yourself on certain properties or whatever, where you're stuck having to get us, you know, stuck having to make three grand a week in order to get just to what you have, then, then the, like, then your properties and all that kind of own you, you know? I don't know, but I mean, I don't know, but I do know that, um, you know, my friends who have worked in corporate America for most of their lives and they're kind of now reaping the real benefits like they have spreadsheets that just show like they're really going to retire like I don't have anything like that yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely nothing you know and like they'll just for some reason this always comes up in conversation with my corporate friends and like they're truly set like until they die and they just look at me like they just can't believe like I exist day to day and I have not planned a future and I don't know what to say because I feel like so dumb I'm like well it's kind of late now or what are you gonna do you know but it is kind of I, I do kind of feel foolish in their company but only for like 20 seconds then of course I leave their house and I come home like oh thank god what was that conversation about that's fucking it's moronic to live a life like that but you know you can get caught up in it <laughs> yeah it's i you're right about the divide thing because i'm very i get very confused about um i mean even retirement it's like i have no retirement plans uh uh monetarily and also i have no retirement plans of not doing what i'm still doing i'm gonna do what i do it's like I don't need to be on a beach somewhere sipping, you know, pina coladas with a bunch of other retirees who've been um, working the corporate gig all their lives. I'm, I'm like, I'm just going to be the guy that's still grunting it out and sitting at cafes, <laughs> looking at everyone going, you dumbass with your laptop. You make every, every role model I have like died alone, you know, in efficiency. There's nothing. I, it is my destiny. <laughs> oh my God. I love that. That, that should be the first sentence of your next memoir or your next, uh, no, that should be the first sentence of your book. If you write a book on how to write, like that would be the, that would be the greatest first sentence in the world. Every hero I've ever had died alone in an efficiency and you can too. <laughs> well, that's the, you know, um, for so part of fireworks every night is the main character Cece. she kind of deals with her father 
her dad's a car salesman. They live a very kind of middle middle class life for a while, and he becomes homeless. And you know that's something you know my dad basically died on the street. He ended up homeless. And I wrote a piece about it for the New York Times right before the book came out. And it's just, um, it's about delusion and like inheriting delusion. And I, I inherited a lot of delusion from my father. And that's what allows me to be a writer. And then like I'm saying, my role models, like Nelson Algren, um, I mean, Charles Bukowski for sure, uh, Lucia Berlin. I mean, all these people were like hooked up to oxygen tanks, living in trailers. It's like, I can all, it's all I can um, imagine for myself as I get older. I've never seen anything else except for these corporate people, but I don't really see them until death. I don't know really what happens in that late stage. <laughs> Maybe their lives go to shit too. I have no idea. <laughs> well, I think, I think in the end we all die. So so that's just so that's the beautiful um what do you call it that's the beautiful uh equalizing of every human on earth is we're all going to die we're all going to die we can't take anything um with us so i guess part well i'm going to try to get some little uh, condoms and stick them up my butt before i die just so i can like, you know and fill them with like writings and stuff just uh, just in case like you know uh, bible scriptures and uh, the quran and whatever i need to just in case i need to go read up somewhere or if i end up in heaven i'm like oh and then pull out that one from that i you know that i snuck in and go okay yeah hi saint peter of course hail mary full of grace That's that's quite a plan, Tony. That's that's my exit strategy. <laughs> that's my afterlife exit strategy. Just nail everything. <laughs> look, don't you think I think some people might be a lot more concerned with like comfort in their old age or something. That's a good point because I that and that would be also comfort in the present time. So comfort in the present time for people who are writing and trying to the, the comfort is the work, not the three yeah. bedroom high rise condo we have looking over Central Park. Right. It's engaging in the process, being able to do the work. Um, but I'm not adverse to having something great happen. And I have that penthouse and that, you know, if if one of the things I do hits I'm, I'm like, let's great. Let's go. And I'll, I'll be that, you know, that guy that buys property and has a swimming pool and drinks pina coladas, mostly virgin pina coladas. Cause I just, <laughs> these days when I drink, it just takes its toll even more than, you know, when you're younger, you're just like sitting there going, Oh yeah, this is nothing but a thing. And Bukowski was great. And then you're sitting there going, Oh, ouch. <laughs> Yeah, but Bukowski was a corporate guy though, because he worked the post office and he had a retirement. Like when you really think about Bukowski, but like what was his retirement? I don't know, but I I have a feeling that especially with those old manual labor corporate jobs, like they had really good pensions in those days. A government job, and I I don't know. I mean, he must have been doing that for like twenty years. Oh, he did it for a long time, but how come, like, I swear every time I read one of his books or stories, it's always like, 
he's always talking about like, it's like $10 here, $12 there or something. So you think that suddenly when he, when he turned like 70, he started getting checks for like a thousand dollars a week or something. I don't know. Cause right about Bukowski's retirement from being, cause we only hear about like the shit of being the mailman and he would do anything to get out of it and never talk to your co your coworkers will screw you over. Like he's told us everything about yeah. mail life, but yeah, you're right. No, he's, we've never heard about some, how did he die? Exactly. I, he was 74 and I, um, and he lit, I mean, him and his wife had a house in San Pedro. Oh yeah, you're right. He was 73. 73. A house in San is San Pedro nice? Uh yeah, San Pedro's okay. I mean, San Pedro is like a place where if you want to be near the beach and kind of it's it's not like it's not be not like Pacific Palisades or something, but if you got I mean, I mean, if I had a house in San Pedro, I would be stoked. I'd be like, oh my God, I've made it in life. You know. Um but but I've also read his like I've read his letters, which were kind of um, the the letters the the books because I I don't read too much Bukowski now, but once in a while I'll read his books of letters. And when he's talking to his friends in his fifties, and he's like, "Dude, you got to stop drinking because that's like what he's like." He's saying this stuff that's so contrary to what his persona was. But I think when he was in his fifties, I I don't know if he was married yet, but I know his wife was kind of like stop stop the booze and I'm going to start making you eat healthy kind of thing. And so there was, so there, you know, then, then longevity starts to happen because the way he was going, he should have bit it before Kerouac. Right. I mean, Kerouac pretty much died of alcoholism when he was in his forties. Oh yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. He had the the bloated face like right before his death. Oh, he looked awful. Yeah. I guess. I don't know. Bukowski always just looked kind of bad. Yeah. (laughs) He was just such a smoker and he had the acne and the not really even a haircut, just growth. Yeah. He just growth. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Yeah, I, li- I where I live in East Hollywood, his little bungalow on DeLongpre, it's like three blocks from here where he where he lived. And most of his most of the stuff that he was writing about was from this area. It's uh there's even bars that have little plaques that say Bukowski uh peed at this urinal. <laughs> what bars are those? Do you know? Uh I know the Frolic Room has that, and also um there's one in downtown that's called uh Varnish, and they're all bougie, they're all a lot more bougie these days, you know. It's not the then it's not the diehard day drinkers of uh, the 1970s and the, where he was at. So, yeah, which is which Los Angeles. It's funny because I don't, you know, how are dive bars in New York these days? Because I remember like like San Francisco was, I mean, it's just amazing for dive bars. And I, I and I used to even like DJ dive bars, and I was I would I was out a lot more. And then when I moved to LA like 10 years ago, I tried to find the dive bar like situation in San Francisco. And when I say a dive bar, I mean like the whole mix of people are coming in where it's like corporate people are coming in the down and outers who have been there all day, the, um, the, you know, the hip people coming in there. I, you walk in with a crate of vinyl records and you're spinning records. And it's that, and that's like, there, there was just like a coming together and to the point where I would even knew some of the like people who were homeless, who would like uh, clean up the place and get paid by drinks and also like 10 bucks at the end of the night. And I'd get on a bus in San Francisco and I'd be like, Hey, what's up, dude. And, and, 
and I'm looking like me and I'm talking to this guy who's obviously like homeless and nobody's going near him, but I know him because of the bars. Cause, cause we all yeah. came together. And, um, but then I come to LA and I couldn't find that anywhere. Cause every, that type of bar was just, I walked into, I was like, I want to do push-ups and have milk instead of anything that any of these people are drinking. Cause they look like they're going to die. There was no like mix. And then all of a sudden I go back to San Francisco and the mix is gone too up there. I don't know if it's happening in New York. There's a great dive bar in LA and I think it's near you residuals. Oh, residuals is in the Valley. Yeah. That's like one of my very favorite. I've had like two parties, like get togethers there. I love residuals, but that's a dive bar to me. Yeah, it's, yeah, it is. You know, you're right. It's so, I have a hard time with dive bars that have parking lots. That just blows my mind. Because residuals has a parking lot. It's small, right? <laughs> yeah. It's a, yeah. It is I, weird. That's really weird. Yeah. It, it still blows my there. I, I live near this place called the drawing room, which is kind of like the local dive of uh, Los Feliz. And um, and there's a parking lot. <laughs> like, like just, just just like when you get in your car, just wave to the policeman who's gonna pull you over half a block away. <laughs> I know. I mean to answer your question, I don't think there are many dive bars left in, I mean, certainly not in Manhattan. Like real true dive bars. I mean, my favorite one, Steaks and Chops, that closed. Um, but like in Florida, there's like the best dive bars, like, and there's like hundreds of them. And just when you think you have found the best dive bar ever, you find a new dive bar. And I feel like that's the that's the best place for dive bars. But San Francisco is pretty great too, for sure. Do you go to Florida a lot? Yeah, I do. I love it. I'm reporting my next book. It takes place in Florida. I spent a lot of time in Florida when I was writing fireworks every night. I grew up in Florida. I have a lot of good friends. I'm going to the Miami book fair in November. I have, you know, I'm giving a little talk, so that'll be fun. I love Florida. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Florida's intriguing. I've never been. I've never been I've never been anywhere south of like Brooklyn as far as that's part of the your part of the coast. Really? Yeah. I really want to explore more of the United States. I feel very <laughs> um insulated. <laughs> I can't believe you've never been to Florida. Um yeah. <laughs> I mean, I grew up in San Francisco and then I, you know, you go to Europe, you go to Europe a couple of times. I, I saw more of Europe than I have in the United States for a long time. And uh-huh. um, I, you know, part of me, it's like Florida really intrigues me and just the South, a friend of mine, they moved to North Carolina. I'm going to go visit them. I can't wait. I want to see what North Carolina is like. It's even the Midwest. Well, no, I've been to the Midwest because my ex-wife was from Wisconsin. So I, I've been around Wisconsin and Minnesota and I like really liked it there. There was, there was like, it was just beautiful and people were nice and it, I, I was kind of blown away um, and how cool it was. Uh, I don't feel that way. <laughs> really? Do you feel well, that way? Oh, the Midwest is? I mean, where in the Midwest? I don't know. I find it just kind of, I, I when usually I can go for like two, three days. I'm talking about things like, I don't know, Chicago, Ann Arbor, Pittsburgh. 
those kind of places. That's Midwest, right? I think so. I've never been to Pittsburgh and there's an author who lives there, Lee Goodkind, the mm-hmm. nonfiction guy. And mm-hmm. I'm just, and I, I have like a long standing. I'm going to come and have lunch with you when I come to Pittsburgh. And he's like, I'll put up with you when you come to Pittsburgh, you know? <laughs> and the, it, I still need to, and like getting to Pittsburgh sucks. I didn't realize how hard it is to get to Pittsburgh. You got to get a flight. It's not like a train goes over there because I don't know the geography. I'm like Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, they're right next to each other, right? No. So it's, so I'm going to have to do a, something where I fly to Pittsburgh in the morning, have lunch with Lee and then fly home, the, uh, fly, you know, fly back to New York that night, wherever I'm staying. And I still have that plan. <laughs> It is, it's hard. Like I have family like outside of Pittsburgh. It's kind of like Southeast Ohio. And for me to get there, it's very hard. It's like, you have to fly into Pittsburgh, rent the car, drive the two hours through the hills and mountains. And it's like, by the time you get there, it's like, why did I do all this? And it's easy. Like from New York, it's easier to go to Costa Rica or Paris. Yeah. At that point, you're just like, why didn't I just, why am I not, you know, sitting at a, (laughs) having wine, uh, you know, on the Seine and instead of like, yeah, instead of driving through the hills of Pennsylvania. I wonder how many people we've insulted on this uh, show. (laughs) No, what did we say? What did we? Oh, you know, talking dirt about that. You know, Pittsburgh. People in corporate jobs. People. Yeah, yeah. So everyone in corporate jobs is never going to listen again. No, no. I. Is that your? Is that your demographic? I have no idea. Everyone who works at Wall Street just going to turn off there. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're exactly. They're just like they're they're listening to podcasts like smart brain and you know well uh the the four-hour work week you know if we could do the four-hour work week what if we do 10 weeks in 40 hours within one week yeah or real estate i've been doing online dating (laughs) speaking of speaking of corporate and this is this so because it's just like I'm, a corporate person is never going to get me and I'm never going to get them. And I've dated corporate people before. And I'm just like, you're very nice, but this is not going to happen because that um, that divide of like that, you know, they feel like, oh, you, you're just hanging out all day. And I'm like, no, I'm getting a lot done, but I just enjoy it and do it. You know, it's there's joy here. You know, it's, I don't have to, I don't clock out at five. Have you gone on a date with a corporate person? Yeah. And I've, I've actually, uh, yeah. And I, I tried to make it work. Meaning what? (laughs) Meaning that, um, well, I don't want to get too into it just in case because it would be, uh, because we're still friends, but, um, until tomorrow when this comes out, (laughs) it's, yeah, you you try to make it. It's I think some people's corporate jobs are masked, especially in LA as creative jobs. When they're not creative jobs, you're just working for a creative company, but you're doing you're doing the same stuff you would do if you worked in tech support. Like I used to work in tech support, and I actually enjoyed fixing things. Like I get a kick out of it, and that's why I think that moved over to writing because writing is a puzzle. It's just like how do how do you make this work? And so that's like a lot of fun and. That's why I had fun trying to put a computer together going, how do you make this work? But, um, but I couldn't take the, 
the fake urgency that happened even in the corporate world where she's like, we got to get JavaScript, this and that, and debug it, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, I know. But why are you caring so much? <laughs> Just relax. You know, I, I want to write some poetry in between. I, I'm going to go over here. Oh, you're not as angry as we are about this. You're not serious. That is weird. I was, I get like kind of impatient with the fake urgency thing too. It is weird. Yeah. <laughs> it's I, and I and and it's weird, but at the same time, I kind of like. I guess you know you love your enemy kind of thing, or you just sit there and go, uh, "There's there's my counterpoint." Um, but wait, how many like how many dates do you go on a week? Nine. No, I'm kidding. Like, like one every three months at this point because oh. my brain can't take it. Um, right. But yeah. and it's, the people I know who have done online dating in California, it was it was truly traumatic for them. I just I just do a cup of coffee and usually it's like it was nice to meet you. Um, and these days since I've been working on the book. Um, I went on one online, I, I actually went on an online date with someone who was very cool, but I just, I knew that it wasn't there, but I was just like, you're so cool. I want to be friends with you. And if you can hand, if you're cool with that, fine. And if you're not cool with that, fine. And she's like, at first she was kind of like, oh my God, this kind of hurts. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's okay. And I've been on that side of it too. So if you, it doesn't work for you, fine. But, and not friends with benefits, just friends, you know? like absolute boundary and then uh and now we're friends so and i'm like well that's not bad that's kind of fun so it's a tough world out there yeah i hear robert's stories too yeah robert robert's stories are way more interesting than mine i think well he he yeah i mean his taste in women is already so kind of on a different level and then you add online dating and <laughs> it's like yeah <laughs> yeah mine just yeah yeah it's mine just <laughs> my my level is just like are you sane question mark <laughs> these people put their weight and height on, on online dating i don't know if it's a los angeles thing or what but they're like five oh. five five 120 pounds i'm like huh i don't and even is know that, that correct i don't even care why are you doing that why do you think they do that? I guess they're signaling that something's important to them. Yeah. Or then there's ones <laughs> where, the, yeah, or, or the there's there's these ones where um, their boobs are flopping out of their top and they're, and I'm just like sitting there going, okay, so I know what you think is, I know what you, I know what you're showing is as important as you feel like is important to you. And so your boobs are your personality is what I see. So see you later. You know, just like because boobs don't make a personality. Are you sure? <laughs> yeah, ask my ask my ex wife. <laughs> ask my ask my friends who know my ex wife. <laughs> no, they make a personality, but um, uh, yeah, I'm digging my hole here. I don't know, Beth. What 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 are what's our uh? How are we closing this out? What's what's our <laughs> last? What's our last big um? Um, one last person to insult the one last part of who who yeah who can we make sure um is 
who can we lose as a friend? Who can you lose as a friend? And who can I lose as a friend for this last thing? <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I, you got a list of like five people. You're like, wait, I was just like running through my head. And I was yeah, yeah, I could lose Jennifer and Brett would be easy to lose. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh my God, that guy, that guy's on the L train at the end of the line. Who needs to go all the way out there, right? <laughs> Thank you for coming on the show, Beth. This has been it's fun. It's a lot of fun. Thank you so much. <laughs>
You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCR LP, Santa Cruz.